0: Last week, we finished uh, Mark chapter 9, and now we are going to start Mark chapter 10. So if you uh, came last week and decided to read ahead at all, you know that we're entering into a passage of Scripture that is somewhat heavy. This is a passage of Scripture where Jesus is going to give his answer on the meaning of marriage and the purpose of divorce. And I find it timely in the day and age we live in to be thinking about these things. And I just wanna open this up so that none of you make maybe the narrow mistake that I made in studying this, thinking that this was for married people, or for people who have walked through a divorce, or even for married couples who are struggling. Because when you think about what we're about to discuss, Every single one of you have been a product of some, for better or worse, marriage or divorce. It affects all households. It affected potentially your childhood or your children. Uh, It is for all of us to consider this important design of God around man and woman, husband and wife, coming together in marriage. And it's a personal matter for many of you right now, and it's deeply painful sometimes. And for that reason, even before we get into it, I realized that I felt just the need to understand it through the lens of more marriages than just my own. So I'll tell you right now that some people within our church helped shape my understanding of this just by spending time with people who have been through divorces, that are in our church every week in our congregation. I got to meet with uh, a few couples or a few uh, people that attend our uh, care group for divorce, which I'm so grateful that we have. Got to meet with a woman on our staff, who many of you know, who walked through a very painful divorce. Uh, And by God's timing, just being in this scripture, actually walked through a divorce in real time this week. So I understand front row how painful and heavy this can be, but we're also talking about marriage, (laughs) which is one of the most glorious things that we can look at, so uh, I promise we will end singing the praises of God in worship and communion in a way that I hope is healing for some and just praiseworthy for all of us. So, that said, here's how we get to the topic of marriage and divorce, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus... It says, then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. So he's on this march ever since we studied Mark chapter 8 and the great confession of him being the Christ going to suffer many things. He's going to Jerusalem and he's on his way there. And as is often the case, as he travels, so do the crowds. And it says the multitudes gathered to him again. And as was a custom, he taught them. Again, So we've got a scene not uncommon in our study in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples on the move, crowds gather, and he takes the opportunity to do what we're doing now, which is to teach the way of the Lord. And as we've already seen, one thing that happens whenever Jesus is trying to bless people with teaching, there are the enemies of Christ that come to deter him. And it says in verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife, testing him? So the first thing that we look at in the framing of this question is not a simple question from student to rabbi. This is not someone from the crowd who's going through a difficult time. These are Pharisees who are constantly looking for ways to pull down the ministry of Christ and diminish his popularity, And it says very clearly they were testing him. So let's understand what the test is because Mark doesn't say it. So we briefly give some context for a potential answer as to how they were trying to test him. First, we get a clue in what we already read that they were in the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Now, where have you heard the word, the Jordan, or the, the where have we studied the scene of the Jordan River before? All the way back in Mark chapter 1, where our precursor to Christ, John the Baptist, was doing all of his baptisms. And in a study that we left for the listener's commentary, in Mark chapter 6, we actually find that John the Baptist has been killed. John the Baptist was not only calling people to repentance, but he was also calling the, the ruler, the tetriarch of the land, to a personal repentance because of an unlawful divorce that Herod had gone through to marry Herodias. And because of that political tension, John the Baptist had his head served on a platter. So one thing that might be laid down as a test, if Jesus gets this wrong, is the Pharisees might be hoping that he suffers the same fate as his predecessor. Another test, and maybe more appropriate for our time, was a theological debate that was happening in the day between the Pharisees and the teachers and the studiers of the law as to what constituted a legal divorce. And that is why they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They were pointing back to the law. So Jesus correctly In the middle of a political debate and a theological debate, in verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you? And so I will point to this tactic of Jesus, which he often does during a time of testing, whether it be from Satan or from Pharisees. He says, what does the word say? And as as we've already set the scene for the, the topic of marriage and divorce being a test, welcome to 21st century America. Is there not a greater test against Christianity than the meaning of marriage and divorce? And I point that out because we live in a time where we can relate to a political test of this topic, and we can relate to a theological test of this topic, and we look to the model of Jesus. He says, well, what does the Bible say? Not what does culture say, or what do the trends say, but what does it say that Moses commanded you? So he wanted to take them back to the law. Specifically, if you're interested in the area of the law that that was really the most focused part of the debate was in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I won't read it all, but it it briefly says that when a man takes a wife and marries her and happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then Moses outlines in Deuteronomy chapter 24 how that certificate of divorce is supposed to have standing. And that is exactly what they say in verse 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. And as we think about their answer, they really represent two popular schools of rabbinical teaching at the time. There was a liberal school and there was a conservative school not unlike our day. There always seems to be liberals and conservatives trying to debate what the Bible is actually saying. So the liberal school for those of you who are interested in the historical context is the Shemai school or the, the conservative school is Shemai and the conservative school said that it was pretty much off limits Divorce was not something that God ever wanted and divorce was not something that you could just do for whatever you wanted except for a shameful act within the marriage. And then there was the school of Hillel, which was much more liberal, and they pretty much got to the point where they found anything to be qualified as a woman being undesirable in the eyes of a man and doing something that would be shameful or unclean. Uh, The classic quote from one of the rabbis of the day was even if she burns or breaks your dish. So uh, if you got sloppy eggs, you could go down to the divorce court and say, I'm out of here, I'm ready to trade in my, my wife, who I really view as, I measure her as a cook, I need a new one and the certificate could be printed according to the liberal view. And so they find the answer within the context of Deuteronomy. They say there must have been a certificate. That's what Moses said. And both schools could agree that if you were going through a divorce, you needed to give a certificate. And the certificate allowed the person being divorced freedom to remarry because the topic always led in that time to how you were ever going to remarry. So a certificate was, would be given. And this is what they say in verse four. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So the trap is this. If Jesus says, well, that's what Moses says, so write a certificate and you'll be fine for any reason, the Pharisees, of course, could be ultra-conservative all of a sudden and they could point out that he was not being true to the heart of God. And if Jesus is too hard on divorce, he could find himself offending the political powers of the day. And aren't we glad that Jesus does not seem to be swayed by popular opinion or by political correctness? The whole time that Jesus will walk them through the answer without actually laying a foot into the trap will be what does the word say and what is God's actual heart for the prescription of marriage and divorce. And this is why Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. In other words, Jesus says, it is because of your hard hearts, because when you sin. And your sin and your hardness of heart causes your marriage to be a house of sin or to put undue burden and pressure and uh, to create a place where someone within that household would be in grave danger. God would accommodate sin, not because he loved it, but because he could save somehow someone in that household. And it was not ever the design. And we know that Jesus will now point to the heart of God as he continues down the line of what is actually the design. He then says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no Man, separate. What God brings together, don't try to separate. And, of course, that could turn into all sorts of other questions right now, which, aren't we grateful the disciples ask for us? In verse 11, it says, In the house his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorce, divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And this is not unlike the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus raises the bar of righteousness to a point that outdid the standards set by the prophet, the, the Pharisees of the day. And this is also a very heavy verse to read as we go through it right now because many of you may be sitting and thinking of your own conditions and thinking of this verse how it applies to decisions you have made about marriage or previous marriages. And this is a verse that is sometimes used in some churches to say that Jesus is outlawing divorce of any kind. It is plain as this verse. Except for the whole counsel of the scripture and the teaching of Christ. What Jesus is saying is that the heart of marriage was not to have divorce. When God brings you together, do not be separated. But it is helpful also to read the parallel account given to us in Matthew chapter 19. In the exact same context, in the exact same answer to the question Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery in other words if you go through a divorce and you walk down to the divorce office and get your certificate over any reason that you can find because you're sick of the woman or because you no longer attracted to the man or because you're no longer compatible or because you don't like the food on the menu it is not a valid divorce in the eyes of God. You're still married, and anything you do could be considered adultery because it's not valid. But that does not mean there are not valid ways that God accommodates the broken covenant of a marriage by one person. And in this example, he says, except for sexual immorality. If someone within the marriage vow, the covenant that was made between man and woman, has done so, something so heinous against their partner, against their husband or wife, to be joined to another, there is now an exception where the contract is now broken in the eyes of God. And God now sees that contract as something that was so violated that one person must be released as to not live under the burden of a broken contract with someone who has violated the deep, one of the deepest trust between two human beings. If the contract is violated through sexual immorality, Jesus says that there is actually an escape route for the person who has been violated. And of course we now have a whole nother debate about what Jesus meant by sexual immorality. And so we can look to the original language and find the word porneia which is where we get our word pornography. And we can try our best to categorize different things that would be uh, sexually immoral in a way that would break the covenant. Mind you, this is not the same word used for adultery. So this is a different category than simply a sexual affair, ongoing affair. Jesus makes an exception For something so heinous that trust has been broken, and one of the greatest breaks of trust is in the area of sexuality. How you answer this question, I believe, requires the wisdom of Solomon. I do not think Jesus wants us to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, even a lustful thought is, is... on par with adultery and I can march down to the office as soon as I need to. And as soon as I catch this person, I'm just trying to get away from with a lustful thought, I'll be out of here. I think that violates the heart of the exception clause that Jesus is trying to make. But what I will say is, when there is something so heinous and so difficult and so tragic that the heart of the marriage has been broken, you will need the grace of God and the wisdom of Solomon to know what God's will is for you in that area. And I'll also point out that there are exceptions that the Apostle Paul also makes to go beyond this to help us understand the heart of what Jesus is getting at. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, throughout that entire chapter, he's trying to navigate a church with a lot of messy marriages. And he gives one example in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart... A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And this is departing from marriage. Meaning, if you find yourself married to someone who has lost faith, they've become an unbeliever, they have shaken their fist at God, and they've actually abandoned the household. Paul says, without the red letters of Jesus, this is a violation of the covenant of marriage. You have been abandoned. And if you have been abandoned, you must not live under the burden of a covenant that the other party is no longer keeping. So Paul uses, I believe, a spirit-led inspiration to encourage the people that he was pastoring how to understand the heart of what Jesus' exception clause was getting at. If the covenant has been violated in a way where Jesus would say, the person has hardened their heart because of the hardness of your heart. When two people come together, it is the most joyous day. It is the most soft-hearted union that you can ever experience. And when something comes in the form of sin to harden the heart against another through the visual picture of sexual immorality, an addiction to pornography, affairs that break the heart of another person, abandoning the person, or putting the person's life in danger. Jesus says that the covenant has an exception. And all the way back to Deuteronomy, when Moses was writing this, all of their certificate of divorces came with the warning that it was an abomination. It was never the heart of God. And we say all that in the category of the testing question of divorce, but that is not actually how Jesus emphasized his response. We looked at the questions that the disciples had after the encounter with the Pharisees to help us understand the gravity by which Jesus wanted to answer the question, don't get divorced. If you get a divorce that is not valid in the eyes of God, you're still married, and anything you do with anyone else would be considered a violation. But we go backwards because this is how our Lord wants to answer the traps and the tests that point people to the question of divorce. He goes back not just to Deuteronomy. He goes back all the way to the beginning in Genesis. And when he says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses gave you a precept, he reminds them that at the beginning of the book of Moses is the design of marriage itself. In verse 6, he says, but from the beginning of creation. This is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so we remember the heart of God from the beginning did not include precepts. There was no law of Moses in Genesis chapter 2. Whatever law followed the fall of man was in reaction to sin that violated the original design. Remember, in the beginning, the Lord said in Genesis, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, comparable to him. It was a gift and a blessing from God and part of the foundation of the story of the Bible was the blessing of marriage. And one of the things that we must consider in the times that we live in, that this can be a theological or political trap for the believer and it can be a temptation because we live as exiles in a pagan land to think that divorce is something that we can find any reason for, is that Jesus wants his audience and us today to understand that marriage is holy and sacred from the beginning. Here's how R.C. Sproul puts it. Our biggest problem is that we have lost touch with something that God has called holy. Marriage is a gift from his hand At the very foundation of human civilization, there is nothing more essential to society and culture than the family. Though the whole world goes crazy trying to redefine marriage, let every Christian be determined in their commitment to the sacred institution of marriage. Marriage is holy and sacred before the law. And I will point out, it's worth remembering that before the law, before it was written, before the word, before the Bible you hold in your hand, there was marriage. Which means everything that we study about marriage that is in the Bible is in the Bible because it's true. It's not true because it's in the Bible. The Bible is describing an essence of what God made. It's true because God made it that way. And then he says... From the beginning, he made them male and female. One man and one woman, a husband and a wife, come together with the command to be fruitful and multiply and represent the oneness of God. Two counterpart designs, man and woman. From the beginning... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And as they're called to be joined together, it says, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is, again, part of the design of marriage is as we, See, in Genesis, we are made in the image of God, and God is a God who is one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in one. And marriage is this beautiful way that God represents his oneness through people, that they would come together and be one. Leave the mother, leave the father, be joined as one to create, in a sense, a new family. This was one of the first lessons in my marriage counseling that comes just through your first year of marriage was the oneness that is required in a new way between man and woman. And I've shared this story before. I come from a family. I leave my mother and father to be joined from my wife's family. She leaves her mother and father. And we will always think of our oneness in terms of food. (laughs) Come together and we eat together. And my family that I must leave behind, it was all that we could do to eat everything on our plate. So anything on your plate, you eat it, you take small portions so you can eat everything and go back for more. Her family puts giant mounds of food and you're only done eating when you, when you have so much food left on the plate it means you're full. And when we came together, I almost killed myself trying to keep up with how much food my wife was putting on my plate. That we actually got into a fight and we had to come to this first and say, we gotta do this in a way that, that blends the two. We must become one, and it's a representation of how families merge into one family, and you have one household, and married couples, you have one bank account, and you have a shared values, and you have a one mission together by God, and of course, it's a double emphasis because it is also this beautiful way that God has designed man and woman to come together to be one flesh, which means physical which means, praise God, he designed from the beginning, man and woman, to enjoy coming together in oneness, in the unity of marriage, through sex. It's great. And it's also designed to make you one. If you're struggling in marriage, if you go through the dry spells and the difficulties, and you think about this sermon, and you think to the difficulties of marriage— Remember, God's gift of oneness is through physical relationships in some ways. Do not let that die. You show me a dead bedroom, and I'll show you a dead marriage. And you show me a thriving bedroom, and I'll show you a marriage that can show each other grace at least. And this is also the warning for all of you considering the culture of our time. That considers oneness between man and woman something akin to playing basketball with someone you enjoy. It is something that you'll do for fun, it is something you do recreationally, and it is something that you do when you feel like it and you stop doing when you no longer feel like it. And so we now live in a time where more people are cohabitating outside of marriage, sleeping in the same bedroom, and it is odd if. Young people in our society wait to the third date to become one outside of marriage. That's strange. And we wonder why so many people are depressed, feeling anxious, and empty inside. Because this oneness is the power of God to join man and woman together, and it is not to be separated. This is not something we're supposed to be experimenting with, with whoever we feel like. The reason that we're going through an absolute avalanche of psychological damage and heartache in our culture is because we have treated sex as though it is not one of the most powerful unions on earth. It is not something to be messed with. It has the power to make you one, and it has the power to rip your heart in two. If you're a young person, heed my warning. Culture is inviting you to go down a path that the Proverbs say will stick an arrow in your back and it will destroy your heart. And one of the only ways to medicate is to go farther and farther and farther down the road of oneness with someone that is not your spouse. And then he says, the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate When God joins us together, we are not supposed to tear it apart. I actually have a very practical way that I learned this lesson in just a, you know, just a kind of a living parable kind of way. You think about the power of God bringing man and woman together in oneness. The the unit that is created when man and woman come together is so powerful. It is as if you glued something together and tried to tear it apart. And when you try to tear apart something that has been glued together, it does not go back to the original state. And my example is this passage of scripture in the Genesis account. The first wedding I did, I I taped the wedding vows to the passage of scripture. Just taped it right on there, let no man separate. And then I got to that passage of scripture to teach it later, and I realized that I could not get the paper off the page. And as I tried to peel it back, I literally ripped that sentence out of the Bible because I glued paper through tape to the Bible, and it rips apart. And that is a picture of what happens when you allow God to bring something together in oneness and try to tear it apart. You cannot go back to the original state. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. They, Christians, speaking of mere Christianity, all regard divorce as something like cutting up a, bo- a body, as a kind of surgical operation. Some of them think the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit it is as desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having both your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership or even deserting a regiment. What God has designed to be joined together to represent his oneness, to bless with the power of a family is not a business partnership. We're not talking about two people coming together, shaking hands, deciding to have some fun until it's no longer fun and then going their separate ways. The oneness will be torn apart, akin to surgical amputation. And as I said, I've walked through divorce recently, and I've had to sit in the room where the oneness was not only represented between man and woman, but the children who part of the one household. And when the surgical amputation happens, there is heartbreak. And with all of these things in mind, Jesus says, so what God brings together Don't let man separate. Don't look for any reason to give up on what God has called you to. Don't march down to the office and find paperwork so that you can get on to the next thing that's more exciting, more invigorating, and more like it was in the beginning. What God has joined together, only God has the power to loosen. And those exceptions must be prayed through with the wisdom of God that James offers us from above. Sometimes I'll do marriages and part of our, our acknowledgement in doing marriages in the state of Idaho is now by the power invested into me by the state of Idaho and God. But I have to say after studying this and meditating on this, I think I'm from now marriages from now on, if, if, we're, gonna get, if we're gonna go down this road, any of you soon, I think I'll take that line out. We're gonna honor the, the court system that they will put into uh, paperwork, the paper trail of what we have agreed upon before God and what God has brought together, but only God creates man and woman to be husband and wife. It is not the state of Idaho, it is not the federal government, it is not a pastor who oversees it. All we can do is recognize what God has made a covenant between man and woman. And part of those vows you know, when I first started doing marriages back in my taping things in the Bible days. (laughs) You know, I'd meet at the rehearsal dinner and say, you good to go? I'll see you tomorrow morning and it's going to be great. And then I realized what I was asking these couples to agree to. From the beginning, there was no clause. No one comes to their wedding day in all of the decorations and the beautiful attire With divorce on their mind. And the covenant is to death. It is a death vow. So now I meet with them and say, you've got to read and pray and fast over giving your life unto death to this person. That is the stakes of what God has instituted on earth as being his institution for the glory of oneness. What God has brought together, let no man separate until death. So I'll just end with some therefores. Hopefully we understand Jesus raising the bar in his day and our day at the holy sanctity of marriage by God's design from the very first part of the story of humanity. And we also realize that the story of Genesis 2 very quickly turns into the fall of the garden and paradise lost and sin running rapid and God all the time having to give us over to sin to save those that he loves. So this message is not a condemnation on anyone who has had to go through the painful surgery of an amputee amputation of marriage. But I'll say this, if this morning you are married and struggling, all of us at times, all of us at times, you want to, you know, just be reminded of that. This week, I'm studying all about marriage and I'm getting ready to go to Israel and realizing that I'm a neglectful husband as I study marriage. All of us at times, Have a snake in the garden of our hearts come and say, did God really say, did you really commit this to the end of your life? Isn't there an exception? Isn't there something you could do? Couldn't someone else understand you better? If you are going through a time of struggle right now, and you have not gone anywhere near what what Jesus would say is an exception to this very high bar of marriage, the word for you is to endure with patience, humility, humility, and hope. That doesn't mean endure anything that would put your life in danger, any abuse that is physically harmful to you. doesn't mean enduring someone that's so hardened against God that they have broken their covenant and their trust against you. But for the marriages that are hard, I just want to encourage you. I have seen so many people go through the fire of marriage and come out on the other side, glorifying God more united than when they started and serving and blessing others who are just a few steps behind them. And that could be you. Don't give up today. If your marriage is on the verge of divorce or if you're going through a divorce, if you just went through a divorce for those biblical exceptional reasons... You are not condemned. God has grace for these ways that he has to accommodate sin. Sometimes he has to take things to the ashes to turn them into beauty. And I do want to offer you that just reminder as you're maybe right on the fork of the road and you're just praying unto God, what do I do? It says in James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, one of the beautiful parts of this week was meeting with those people who had walked through divorce. And I can tell you, every person that I met with from our divorce care to the the woman on our staff to a man who had been abandoned, they all prayed and fasted and just pleaded with the Lord, God, give me wisdom. And every one of them at a time turned into a missionary for a hard-hearted spouse. That doesn't mean that's your calling necessarily, but I have found that God uses the spouse of a hardened person so many ways as his last attempt to reconcile. And then he will give a, a loosen of the bond when each one of those persons knew that it was by the grace of God that they were set free And they'd done everything to wait and wait and wait and hope and hope and hope before they ever thought about going down this road. So I pray that you will have wisdom and grace as you find yourself in the trial and the fire of these exceptional clauses to marriage. I also want to speak to those of you who are kind of on the other side of this message and you read this and you think, man, I wish I would have read this 15 years ago if you've committed adultery that led to a divorce, if you didn't know Jesus and his wise words to point you back to the essence of marriage and you broke a covenant that was not at all godly or God-honoring and then you remarried and you find yourself looking back and, and realizing you handled that in ways that do not represent how Jesus would have led you in that, I'm going to point back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because Paul was dealing with a lot of messy marriages and he was dealing with new believers and people that were coming together out of all sorts of things. And he says to them, Brethren, let each one of you remain with God in the state in which he was called. What I don't want any of you to hear is, oh my goodness, I'm reading this now and I'm realizing I'm committing adultery with my current spouse. I got to go get a divorce from her. That would not be the answer. (laughs) You've got to stay where you're called. And you've got to believe in the promise that God can use what was intended for evil for your good. He can heal the broken path of destruction that sin left behind you. He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness, including the unrighteous acts that you committed, the the unrighteous decisions that you made. He can forgive you and he can cleanse you and he can somehow redeem you right now where you're at because you cannot go back. So I share with all of us whatever category of marriage you find yourself in. And for those of you who listen to this and your best reference point is your own household or maybe someday considering marriage, think of the single, the, the, the young and old single, those who are still waiting. Your job is to know God so intimately that you would not place marriage or your desire for a spouse anywhere near his throne and trust that his plans for you are perfect and his timing will not fail you. And you can benefit from what I'm about to read as well. So for our current marriages and for our challenged marriages and for those of you who are on the other side of divorce and those of you who are still waiting, all of us, as we go through the Psalms as a church, can benefit from Psalm chapter 51, which is the Bible's medication for brokenness when it comes to the acts of infidelity and horrible, horrible decisions. And I'll just read this one verse to you, but I encourage you to read all of it if this is something that you need to be built up in. David cries out in his own despair over this topic, "'Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Be renewed by God. If your marriage is difficult, be renewed in those initial vows and the covenant promise you made. Humble yourself, ask for forgiveness, and be renewed. If you're going through the steps of now trying to reorientate to life as a non-married person, be renewed and steadfast in the spirit of God. And for all of us, as we wait, be renewed in your endurance to wait on the timing of the Lord. And so every week communion is very necessary because we live in a world where we need refreshed and reminded where we're going and how we get there all the time. We are going to heaven. We get there by the free gift of the cross of Christ that cleanses us. But today's communion is especially important. I love that in all the weddings I get to do, so often, the first act that the husband and wife decide to take together is to remember the cross, communion, the, the body and the blood, that Jesus died and paid for our sins as the foundation of our marriage. It's the renewal of our marriage. It's the hope that marriage can endure and survive. And it's for those of you who are burdened by sins that you've committed, it is your time again to be refreshed and say there's no condemnation in Christ. You're cleansed by confessing your sins. Here's what it says in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May that be true as we hold that. May you believe that as you hold the communion elements in your hand. And we're going to Worship now, and I just want to end by saying this: This is one short sermon that might open up an entire can of worms in your heart, in your mind, in your marriage. So I want to point any one of you who just needs more pastoral care. You need more biblical counsel. You need people to come around you and help pray for decisions you have to make. Uh, Frank is here. He said he'd be at the Welcome Center as our premarital, Frank and Kathy are our premarital disciplers. They'll help anyone who is right before marriage. They have a heart for marriage. I spoke with Reggie this week and he wants any one of you that that writes down on the bulletin just a request prayer or uh, if you need a meeting or counsel, he is ready to point you in the way that you should go. And we don't want this at all to be something that you do not find comfort and help with. So please let us know how we can serve you.